I'd invite you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll be looking the rest of this summer in the morning service at Paul's letters to the church in Thessalonica and what it means to be a church, but maybe more according to the, the questions that the Thessalonians were asking, what does it mean to live as a Christian? What does it mean to live as a Christian? So we're going to jump right into that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, again in the ancient tradition, the Roman tradition, the signature is at the top of the page, at the top of the letter. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. We'll conclude our reading there. You might want to keep your Bibles open as we work our way through those verses. But let's open first with prayer. Holy Spirit, as you inspired Paul to write these words to the Thessalonians and the Thessalonians to receive them, we pray that now today you would inspire these words to us to help us know what we are to take from them, these words, and, and how we are to live out our Christian lives, our Christian faith in a way that pleases you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this summer we're going to ask the question, what does it mean to live as a Christian? That was the question Paul was trying to answer in his letters to the Thessalonians. You see, these were new converts in Thessalonica, and they were asking Okay, so now that I'm a Christian, what's different about living a Christian life in contrast to the way that they had lived as pagans in the Roman Empire and the Greco-Roman culture? Now Thessalonica, as you can see by the, the photo up here, was a seaport. It's Thessaloniki today. It was the capital and largest city in Macedonia or Greece, some 100,000 people, which is quite a bit, in those days. It was also an extremely important trade and communication center at the crossroads of the Ignatian Way, which would be the east-west route across uh, this map, and the north-south road from the Aegean Sea to the Danube River. So if you look at this map, in the bottom right-hand corner you see Caesarea Philippi. That's the northern part of Israel. So that gets us our bearings. You move up, as Paul did, 
up into that area, that bigger area of Asia Minor, but then if you had crossed the Straits or crossed the Aegean Sea by boat, you'd end up in uh, Macedonia and Achaia, and there you see Thessalonica to the far left uh, of your screen. And there you see it's a seaport. Just north of there, the Danube River flowed, and so from there, from north to south, if seas were coming in at the seaport, um, the, the goods would travel up through Thessalonica up to the Danube River. If you were coming across land, you had the Ignatian Way. And so it was a crossroads. It was a very important uh, place in the Roman Empire. This is actually the remains of the Ignatian Way uh, outside of modern-day Thessalonica. Now, we're gonna, that's the, all the pictures you get to see today. Uh, but I just wanted to give you a little, a little background, a little context. Further background or further context comes to us from the book of Acts. In Acts 17, it tells us that Paul preached in Thessalonica for three weeks in a synagogue there, reaching far more God-fearing Gentiles who were attending the synagogue than the Jews, and the Jews actually started a riot in opposition, and Paul had to leave at night making his way to Berea and then to Athens. But Paul was still concerned about this infant church and especially the persecution they were experiencing. So as Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica, and now, Paul, now Timothy has come back and met Paul in Corinth and given him a report about the faith and faithfulness of the Thessalonian church but also sharing with Paul some issues that were going on there that needed addressing, which Paul will address later in the letter, although he also starts to foreshadow those already in chapter 1, things like Paul's integrity, their persecution and moral conduct in Christ's second coming. Before he gets to those issues in depth, which we'll look at as we go on through the summer, Paul starts, however, with an affirmation. He says, To the church... Of the Thessalonians. So he writes them as a church. Now, this is a, just a fledgling group. Paul had only been there a few weeks. He just got started. This was, at best, what we would call a church plant. Certainly not an established church, but he's already calling them a church because Paul sees in them the marks of a church. So, what makes a church or what makes a Christian? Well, first, it is a community living in God. Notice Paul says, the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He acknowledges that they are already in, G- in God. They're in Jesus Christ. That's a, that, that word in is a little word, but for Paul it meant union with Christ. They were united with Christ. They were rooted in drawing their power from, from the Godhead. And then Paul greets them with his iconic greeting, grace and peace which in essence is saying now, not only are you rooted in the power of of God, but from God, from Jesus Christ, you are receiving grace and you are receiving peace. Grace was a typical Roman greeting, Greco-Roman greeting. But it, it took on new meaning as the Christians started using it because grace, charis, we get our word charity from it, grace was that idea of that undeserved favor we have through Jesus Christ, that through nothing that we do on our own, we are in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so 
that grace, that undeserved favor we receive in Jesus Christ, then leads to peace, the second part of Paul's greeting, and that was a typical Hebrew or Jewish greeting. Shalom, it would have been in the Hebrew. And shalom meant more than just absence of conflict, but a presence of, of harmony with God, with each other, with the created world. Paul takes that on as a, his distinctive greeting to his churches and to others. A distinctive Christian greeting that honors both Jewish and Gentile believers alike, but also draws forth those huge concepts of God's grace and God giving us shalom or peace. Now, as a church, as Christians, is this true of us? Are we drawing life from God? Are we in Christ, in union with Christ, as Paul says? Are we rooted in God's grace so that we can experience his peace? A second aspect of being a community is that the community is characterized by godliness. Look at verse 3. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul recognizes in them these three Christian virtues, which he loves to use, right? We hear these all the time, faith, hope, and love, perhaps most famously in 1 Corinthians 13, where he talks about these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Here Paul, again, shares these virtues, which are also fruit of the Spirit, and says he sees them in Timothy's report of them. Now, faith, hope, and love might sound kind of abstract, conceptual, but in Paul's mind, they're actually practical and productive. Paul saw in the church, first of all, a working faith. A working faith. True faith in God is active. It works. As we'll see this fall when we look at the book of James, faith without works is dead. And a laboring love. True love, Christian love, and they took on a very uh, seldom used Greek word, agape, which meant a self-giving, self-sacrificial love. True agape love for others labors on their behalf. And an enduring hope. A true hope in Jesus that brings about endurance and patient courage. Would people see that in our church? Would people see those characteristics in, in your life? For not only is this to be true of the church, but, but every Christian is, by definition, a believer, a lover, and a hoper. Faith, hope, and love. Because that's the fruit of the Spirit residing in us. The signs of the fruit working, of the Spirit working in us. Now, as we think about that, we, we often probably have that in our mind, yeah, we're supposed to do that, but have you ever done any evaluation and said, you know, faith, hope, and love, hmm, which of these qualities is strong in my life right now? Which of these qualities is strong in our church? And, and which might need a little work? And then thirdly, Paul says that, that they are a community chosen by God. This is rather stunning. Verse 4, Paul says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Paul says he knows they are chosen by God, but, but we've always been taught the elect are known only to God, right? So how can Paul know this with certainty? It's because of the evidence he sees in their life. The evidence, first, of the Holy Spirit's fruit in their character, faith, hope, and love, 
But those are God qualities, and he sees that in them. But then he also sees it in their reaction to the good news, their reaction to the gospel. The gospel that the good news that Jesus died for their sins, took the rightful place of punishment, and promises new life with God. And that in the rest of this chapter, Paul is going to expand now and how they respond to that good news and, and how he sees that as hints that they are chosen by God. Well, not only should this be true of us as a church, but also of individual Christians. By their fruit you will know them, says Jesus. As people look at us in our everyday lives, would they say that we are loved and chosen by God? Based on our character, based on our fruit, based on our response to the gospel. Well, then Paul's further evidence for this astounding statement is, is the progress that, of the gospel that he's seen in them in such a short time. Again, this is all based on Timothy's report. But here we see three stages of Christian development. First, the good news sank in. Verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. Um, the last little phrase there he talks about is integrity and how, how he lived among them, and he'll talk about that later. We'll see that's an important thing that he's going to deal with in the passage we'll look at next week. But he fo the focus I want to look at here is, that, is the question, how does the good news come into our lives? that someone could see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And Paul notes four ways. He says, first of all, it comes in words. The good news always comes first in words, the external call of God to us. In Romans 10, Paul says, you know, how can they, how can they know unless they've heard the word? And, and how can they hear the word unless there's someone to preach it to them? The good news always comes in words, but that's not enough because maybe some of us are sitting here, have heard these words all, all, you know, throughout our whole lives, but maybe they've never really sunk in. And so we also need power. The, the words must penetrate the thick walls created by, by sin in our hearts and our minds, our consciences and wills. For some, that means a, a, a changing conscience, a softening heart. We'll talk about that a little bit tonight from Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Thirdly, it comes by the work of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit does an inside job, preparing our hearts and helping the good news to take root and grow. And maybe some of us just simply need to open the door to the Spirit. Paul's constantly saying, don't quench the Spirit of God. Keep in step with the Spirit. And then finally, in truth, with deep conviction. It comes with deep conviction. That is to truly believe the good news applies to you. Yeah, it's true for me. It's not just true for that guy over there. It's true for me as well. The Heidelberg Catechism, question answer 21, uh, says, asks the question, what is true faith? And its answer is that true faith is two parts. It's knowledge, but it's also a deep-rooted assurance. That's what Paul's talking about here. A deep conviction. It's not just it, faith hits our head, the gospel hits our head, but it also needs to hit our hearts. Where are you at today? Is God calling you, but you're avoiding him? 
Is he doing an inside job in you, softening your heart, changing your conscience? Will deep conviction result in a changed life for you? Well, the good news sank in, but then Paul notes that the good news also bore fruit. Verses 6 and 7, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That is, when the Holy Spirit begins working in your life, He helps you bear the fruit that we already saw in verse 3, faith, hope, and love, but then Paul's added a couple of words uh, since then. He, he's also added joy and peace to that. But it also has effect, affected their lives by helping them first become imitators. They became imitators of Paul, Silas, and Timothy as Paul, Silas, and Timothy were imitators of Jesus Christ. One of the ways we, we learn to be Christians is we become imitators of those models of Christianity that we see before us. Maybe our parents or grandparents or other people in our church. They became imitators of Christ through these people. Secondly, we, we, it affected their lives by giving them joy in the midst of suffering. They found joy in life during persecution. We'll talk about their persecution later. But think about that. Only Christians understand that kind of joy. How often haven't I heard that asked by, by family that's having a funeral? How can anyone deal with death apart from Christ? How, how do you deal with it? How do you deal with persecution? How do you deal with suffering apart from Jesus Christ? But then what's really interesting is that they become models. Those who started out as imitators of others are now becoming models for others. Models of faith and faithfulness. That's the goal, right? We may start by learning our faith through others, seeing Christ in others, but ultimately we must grow to being teachers and models ourselves. And they're, in a short time, they are already being models for other people in Macedonia and Achaia. Whom have we imitated in our lives in the faith? And have we grown to the point where we become models for others. And what kind of models are we? The good news sank in, the good news bore fruit, but then the good news also rang out. Verse 8, The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. The good news rang out. This reflects a Greek word that you actually know. Echo. I wonder what word we get from that. Maybe echo? But for them, it meant more than that. It meant a loud, a loud noise, perhaps a loud noise with a purpose. A trumpet call, rumbling thunder, the boom of a big bass drum. Or maybe we could call it a sounding board. They had become a sounding board. A sounding board is the good news not only sank in, but echoed off them to Macedonia and Achaia throughout Greece. How did it do that? Well, first it did it in words. We said that already, right? The good news always comes in words. They shared the good news with others. 
while Paul fled, the good news continued. It continued to spread by holy gossip. Pastor's gone, but the good news is spreading. I like that idea of holy gossip. Holy gossip. Church growth surveys show us that well over 75% of church growth comes from a friend-to-friend sharing of the good news. The sharing of holy gossip. As it's said about church leaders, shepherds don't have lambs, sheep do. The good news advanced spontaneously even with the shepherd gone. To the point where Paul's saying, you're putting me out of a job. I don't, we don't even have to say anything about this. They're all testifying to what's going on in your life. But it not only came in words, it also came in actions. They turned to God from idols to worship the living God. They turned to God from idols. That word for turning is both in the Old and New Testaments is, is a word about repentance. It's a word about changing direction. A word for coming into relationship with Jesus. We might call it conversion, which is simply a change in direction. You're heading one way. You meet Jesus like Paul did on the road to Damascus, and you, you, it turns your life around. You head the other way. How did it happen for them? Well, their witness became visible as they broke with idols and served the living God. Now, you have to understand, this is, we think, oh, okay, well, yeah, that's a a good thing. But you have to understand how that impacts the, the churches that Paul is dealing with. In those cities, there were idol gods that basically, if you could say, ran the city, or they were in, in charge of different aspects of city life. One was in charge of the politics, and one was in charge of the economy, and one was in charge of the, the fertility of crops, and all of these different things. And you were expected to pay homage to these gods, and, and if you didn't, you could be drummed out of the city, or you could lose your shop or whatever, because you're going to bring the wrath of the gods down on our city. So this is no small thing. And we read that they they broke with idols. Now prevalent in Thessalonica were the Egyptian god Serapis, their patron god Kabiris, and other gods you may have heard of, Dionysus, Aphrodite, Demeter, Zeus, Asclepius. They turned from all of them. Maybe some of them closed up their shops because they weren't allowed to, to be in the business. Maybe they got kicked out of city government because they weren't allowed to because they wouldn't sacrifice to that god. And so part of the holy gossip was, have you heard what happen, is happening in Thessalonia? Have you heard what's happening among those people? Do you know so-and-so is a Christian? you know so-and-so is no, no longer uh, offering his sacrifice to Kabiris or Serapis? Can you believe it? So their words were backed by actions, actions that really cost them. And then also an attitude. And their attitude in particular was patient endurance in the midst of suffering, persecution, and martyrdom, largely because of their putting aside the city gods. In all of this, Paul says, as you wait, so Paul's already starting to think of what he's going to be talking about later, which is the second coming of Jesus and the final judgment. So what words, what actions, what attitudes are ringing out from us to our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our colleagues, our classmates, our neighbors? 
Have you seen this transformation in your life? If not, offer your life to Jesus Christ and discover how life-changing a relationship with him is. But if you've been transformed, then this chapter is a reminder about how the good news comes to us and what we do with it. It's a chapter about living by faith and living faithfully. And if you get nothing else, note these two truths. The church or the Christian who receives the good news must pass it on. The church or the Christian who receives the good news must pass it on. God intends every church or every Christian even to be like a sounding board bouncing off the vibrations of the gospel or maybe today we'd say like a telecommunications satellite which first receives and then transmits the message. The church or Christian who receives the good news must pass it on, but also, secondly, the church or Christian who passes on the good news must embody it, embody it, live it out. It's not just about what you say, but it's about who you are, what you do. It's not only verbal evangelism, but rumor evangelism, holy gossip. Not only what's said, but lived. Because you cannot spread the good news without being visibly changed by it. Are we faithful in passing it on and living it out? Join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can know the grace and peace that we have in you through your son Jesus and the good news that we can celebrate, not just as we stay within these walls, but we can celebrate as we get out among others in this coming week. Help us to do so. Help us to celebrate. Help us to make our witness visible, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.